You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. You're listening to the E2C Network. Podcast by Auburn fans for Auburn fans. Hello and welcome to War Horses, the only college equestrian podcast that goes out and gets interviews with the executive director of the dang sport. I am your host, Auburn Elvis. Let's talk about some college equestrian. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, the Auburn-South Carolina meet got postponed, but I still have a great episode. We're going to start things off with an interview that I was able to get with the executive director of the NCEA, Dr. Leah Fiorentino. Now, for you football fans who might not know who she is, Imagine you had the opportunity to sit down with the head of the college football playoffs and ask them anything you wanted about the sport and the postseason. Well, that's what I was able to do. So we're going to jump right now into that interview, then we'll come back and I'll catch you up on this week's action, get you ready for next week's meet against Georgia. So here's the interview, and I'm very proud of it. We have a special guest with us today. She is the executive director of the National Collegiate Equestrian Association, Dr. Leah Fiorentino. Welcome to War Horses, Dr. Fiorentino. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, a lot of my listeners might not be super familiar with how the NCEA is structured. Um, can you tell us just, uh, you know, who do you work with there and what are some of y'all's chief responsibilities uh, that you work on as uh, executive director? Right. So the, the National Collegiate Equestrian Association, the NCEA, we're the organization that's responsible for the oversight of NCAA equestrian while it's in an emerging sports status. Mm-hmm. So the NCAA has two categories of sports. They have championship sports, mm-hmm. and then they have this category called emerging sports. And emerging sports are only for women's sports. Um, and it, it was a special category created after um, some title, early Title IX efforts weren't very successful at uh, providing more equitable opportunities for women in the college setting. Right. So someone has to be responsible for shepherding the sport and communicating with the national governing body, mm-hmm. as well as the NCAA. So we have been designated as that group who um, provides the oversight, is responsible for submitting reports um, to the U.S. Olympic Committee, to the NCAA, mm-hmm. uh, to the USEF, and um, yeah, kind of sits on me. Okay. Now, I, I did uh, take a peek at your bio, and I read that you were also a student athlete in swimming, and it was on a men's swimming team. So what was that experience like? Yeah, so um, back in the old days, like old as dirt, but yes, I was um, I was a college athlete during those early Title IX days, mm-hmm. um, and there were not teams for men and for women. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the NCAA didn't have any women's sports back in the 70s. Wow. There was a parallel sport organization called the AIAW, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Mm-hmm. And they ran a national championship for women in all the different sports. The mm-hmm. NCAA was only for men's sports, politics being politics and finances being finances. Um, women's sports magically disappeared. The AIAW went away, uh-huh. and everything came underneath the NCAA umbrella. So um, when I was competing, there was no women's swim team. Mm-hmm. I competed against the men. I 
won the first, uh, was the first woman to win a gold medal in an NCAA swimming championship. Wow. And that's only because we didn't have women's swim teams at that time having a designated women's championship. Because there were women that swam faster than me. Mm -hmm. But they just didn't Um, have that opportunity. They they were in the AIAW. Oh, I see. Okay. And I was on a men's team, so I was in the NCAA. Wow. So it it was a very um, interesting time. For example, we would the team meeting room was inside the men's locker room for almost all of the different schools that we would go to compete against. Mm -hmm. So either I was left out on the pool deck by myself, or they would have to get me into the team meeting room and literally put a towel over my head. Oh my goodness! And lead me through the locker room so that I could be part of the team meeting. Wow. Um, There were times where we went to different schools and they didn't have a facility for me to change in. And I would literally be changing in a janitor's closet. Oh, my goodness. What what an experience. It did set the tone. Uh, (laughs) You know, I look at, um, I have two daughters who are direct benefits of all the hard work that places like the Women's Sports Foundation Mm -hmm. and all those um, women's sport advocates, they, they were just, they worked tirelessly. And my daughters went to college on full athletic scholarships, and that was a direct benefit of the hard work that that those women did for all of us when we were much younger. So Hmm. this is my way of paying back, Mm -hmm. not only to equestrian, but to women's opportunities across a larger spectrum Mm -hmm. and helping women move and and see viable pathways to leadership opportunities. Wow. That is such a great story. Wow. You you have such a great personal story. That is amazing. I never suspected all of those details. That's great to hear. Well, with, normally when you talk mm-hmm. to somebody involved with equestrian, you, you assume that they had this deep love of horses. And um, I, I, I like to look at horses, but I, as a child, we had no money. I couldn't afford to even go for a pony ride. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so how yeah. then did you become so interested in equestrian? So that, <laughs> That's a big story. How do, you pay back to, how do you pay back to a sport that was so good to your family? Um, my older daughter um, was gifted five riding lessons when she was a young Mm six-year-old, and uh, her godmother, I blame it on her, um, (laughs) got us started, and um, the people in the equestrian world, you know, I mean, everyone comes into your life for a reason. Some of them are more challenging, but the vast majority of the people that looked out for my daughter and took care of my daughter all the way up to college, I had, she was so fortunate, trainers would volunteer to take care of her and gave her horses to ride, and um, then she had a fabulous experience in a college setting. The sport was good to her, and therefore it was good to my family, and sometimes you just got to pay it back. Well, now, um, I did I did also notice in your bio that you have two daughters uh, that went to SEC schools. Is that correct? They did. So yeah. um, my daughter, Logan, who was an equestrian, she rode on the University of Georgia mm-hmm. equestrian team, and they were very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Prior to Auburn, becoming a very successful program. Mm-hmm. And um, then she was hired to coach, and she worked with uh, – she was one of the hunt seat coaches, and she worked with Coach Berning, and they were national champions. Mm-hmm. So um, – she, she wore red for a long time. And mm-hmm. my other daughter, um, she was the captain of the swim team at South Carolina. Nice. So um, there were days where I wore garnet, and there were days when I wore red. And uh, I drove back and forth between Columbia and um, Athens quite frequently. Okay. Well, yeah, th- that's better than, say, if one of them had gone to Florida and the other to Missouri. You know, that would be a bit of a drive. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> 
you know, earlier you had mentioned just sort of your role in helping shepherd uh, uh, the NCEA just through this period of trying to um, uh, emerge as a full um, championship sport. So you've got all these typical responsibilities where you're working with stakeholders, corporations trying to get sponsorships, you're man- helping manage the postseason and all these things. So in the past year, on top of all of those responsibilities, you now have these additional health and safety issues with COVID. So how are you managing these new priorities along with what you would see in a typical year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, within the NCAA, there are some general NCAA guidelines that um, they're pretty broad umbrella type guidelines, but they give at least some structure for uh, schools mm-hmm. to then make campus-based decisions. Mm-hmm. And those campus-based de- decisions are in line with their state and local government ordinances. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I was just on the phone today with someone from Baylor University, and that county down there, McClellan County, mm-hmm. um, has a an indoor occupancy restriction to 25%. Okay. So if a building has 100 available seats in it, they, they can only use 25. Right. So for Baylor, that mm-hmm. becomes then how they have to work on their campus um, in academic classrooms as well as athletic venues mm-hmm. because that's their campus-based decision, whereas in um, at University of Tennessee Martin, mm-hmm. their indoor restrictions are less restrictive. Yes. You can have a higher percentage of the indoor arena there filled with individuals so that meets – so, for example, the ECAC postseason tournament is going to be at UT Martin, and there okay. will be spectators um, allowed, teams will have, I'm assuming teams will have, you know, a specific number of people on a pass list, for example, mm-hmm. so that they can bring a certain number of spectators to watch. Okay. Whereas Baylor is hosting the Big 12 postseason championship, mm-hmm. and for that postseason event, Baylor will determine how many, if any, fans can be in their venue. Right. And again, it's it's basically following the local lead of, of what the, the local health departments have, have put out as, okay, yeah. these are the restrictions for our area. Right. So we've got a master list of what the um, restrictions are, and of course they change. On they a change, yes. <laughs> um, for, and, and we distribute that to all the schools. There's a lot of open sharing of information um, mm-hmm. with that, but it, it is a local set of decisions. So TCU, for example, has a no-fan policy at their mm-hmm. venue, and what they were able to do was work with their athletics department uh, to work with ESPN yeah, Plus, um, and they, they're live streaming all of their home meets. Yes, I've seen that, and I actually watched um, uh, one of their earlier ones. So, yes, um, I've seen that more, and I think Georgia has live-streamed um, uh-huh. uh, two meets so far this season. So, yes, I guess that's one, I guess, good thing that we can we can say has come out of that is more teams are looking at getting these meets uh, shown either on ESPN Plus or some sort of live-streaming. I, actually, I think UC Davis, um, they live-streamed uh, some of their events just with a phone on Instagram and on Facebook, you know, which, uh, of course, it doesn't have the production values of being broadcast on ESPN Plus, but at least it's better than nothing. You know, you get to see these riders doing stuff. So, you know, maybe that that's the silver lining to some of this is that it's getting more um, exposure out there for the sport because we are seeing more of these um, places live streaming. And it, it really means the world to the student athlete. You know, their student athlete experience, which is what we're supposed to be all about, has really been impacted so severely. I mean, all our lives have been impacted so severely. But now at least they know that their family can watch their ride. Right. It means a lot to the kids. 
So well, let me ask you then specifically about the upcoming postseason. Um, now, you mentioned uh, Baylor, which is in Waco, um, and obviously that's where the national championship is held. Now, uh, is the – but I know that that one is not in on Baylor's campus. It's at the downtown convention center uh, or uh, the Extraco Center. Actually, right. It's at a location called the Extraco um, Event Center, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of set just outside the middle of town, more out towards the, the little suburbs okay. surrounding there. Um, but Baylor is still the host institution, mm-hmm. so their um, oversight in terms of medical procedures and policies will be what governs mm-hmm. the policies and procedures that are put into place alongside the um, county and state ordinances. Okay. Is the Extraco Center in a different county from the university? No. No, no okay. So it would have the exact county. same county restrictions. Okay. Then what sort of uh, changes will be happening to the postseason? Because I've I've heard that there are going to be some changes, maybe to the number of teams, maybe to which teams bring horses and so forth. So what could you tell us about the changes we could expect uh, in April uh, over in Waco? Yeah, so um, like the rest of the world, we had some budgetary concerns. Um, and moving our equipment, our horses, um, mm-hmm. is, is a major financial part of our championship. So we were looking at number of horses that we need to, to run a full-blown championship that we had done in the past, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time adding new elements. And um, the coaches came together, and you know, we here's what we have for a budget, and here's what we can. Um, here's the money. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out what we can afford to include in the national championship for just this one year, mm-hmm. given the impact of COVID on colleges' mm-hmm. um, budgets and how much how much money we could gather from sponsors. Remember, there we, we can't have vendors at the event. Um, sponsors aren't going to, we're not going to have it open to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll, it's hard to get that money in. So the coaches um, talked it through, hashed it out, and um, made a decision. One thing that we're doing is um, in addition to the dual discipline national champion, which is open for teams that have both western and jumping seats, right. uh, this year there's going to be a national championship for schools that have only a single discipline. So Sweetbriar, um, um, Lynchburg, I believe, is a, is a jumping seat only school. Right, right. So when we looked at the potential for um, new schools mm-hmm. to come on board, there's a higher percentage of schools that have the potential to become members of the NCEA mm-hmm. um, who are single discipline. And primarily the, the largest group is the jumping seat event. Okay. So we created a pathway for a national championship for them so that they could see that opportunity mm-hmm. to be an NCEA eventually, in a few years, be an NCAA national champion. Okay. But in doing that, we again, the coaches made some hard decisions, and we wound up eliminating the um, event opportunities. So we had to restrict Uh-oh. those back mm-hmm. in order to allow for um, a national title for single-discipline schools. Oh, okay. So that was so, because of the compromise. You know, we had to restrict in one area for growth and expansion in another area, and it's a one-year, one-year mm-hmm. format decision, and we're already in the process of voting through and approving what uh, the 2022 format will look like, which would then reintroduce everything back in. Okay. So uh, just so that I'm hearing you correctly, there is a new pathway that's going to be for those uh, schools who only compete in the um, in a single well a single discipline, but two events. So it would be the uh, both jumping seat, equitation on the flat, equitation over fences. And so there'll be a tournament for those teams, and there will not be four tournaments for the four events that we would traditionally have just for this year. But then there will, of course, be the uh, the main tournaments that we we typically have in, in all of the years. 
that correct? correct. And yep. are the number of teams changing in that tournament? Or? We're at eight mm-hmm. um, in the dual discipline. We're at four in the single discipline. So we're, we're trying to do it incrementally mm-hmm. with what we can afford and um, how many horses we can get there and how many times the horses can be used and right. um, yes. how late into the day the student-athletes have to be there. It, it becomes an interesting exercise to mm-hmm. go through and try and schedule that, you know, and time out the number of minutes each trip would take and, you know, okay, we have to take an element out of the flat because it's too long or the horsemanship pattern has to be shortened so that we can pick up an extra 20 seconds per pattern. And Mm -hmm. the coaches are fabulous. They really put together um, a great event. So, yeah, I can see how certain decisions are starting to cascade down where you're starting to see, okay, well, I need to gain back another hour overall. So where can I get that? Well, if we take out this one element of a pattern, that saves us 20 seconds multiplied out by, you know, 10 rides. And, yeah, I can see how that would all – Boy, what, and, a, what an interesting you, undertaking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the women who, who run the championship committee, and they are incredibly detail-oriented, and they're fabulous with this. And they, um, you know, they have to build in buffer time for rerides. Yeah, uh, you got to have time for those Western video reviews because, as we saw last year, oh well, not goodness. last year, the previous year, that the, that third judge review took forever in some of those uh, Western contests. Yeah, so they, they've adjusted a, a rule change. <laughs> okay, so they've made some accommodations <laughs> on that. Oh, good, good, because – let me tell you, we noticed. Fans noticed that it, it, yeah, it was almost like every ride was being stopped to be reviewed. It, it really became uh, interesting. I'll just say interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and we understand from the fan perspective, think about the event management perspective where um, some of us in the office going, oh, my gosh, we're so behind schedule. How are we going to get these kids out of here? What are we going to do? The TV time, the live stream time. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we know very well what's going on there. But we're working hard on, um, on, on great adjustments for example, we used to have um, a big recognition ceremony one night where we would honor um, our distinguished alumni. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're not going to ask them to travel and, and receive right. their awards in person. But now we have two sets of awards. We have the 2020 awards and we have the 2021 awards. And we're going to live stream it, the recognition of each one of those um, wonderful women. Mm-hmm. And it'll be put into different sections. For example, when there is a re-ride, oh, we'll be highlighting. Call that up as a video. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, right there we just captured like 45 minutes of, of night yes. activity well you know if you need video clips of someone in a homemade Elvis costume uh, just let me know because <laughs> I'm on call for that. that's great hey Auburn fans I want to take a quick time out from this episode to bring your attention to something very special here at the E2C network we pride ourselves on bringing you the best content for Auburn fans out there and best of all it's free to you But just because it's free doesn't mean there aren't costs, especially when you have a library of hundreds of podcasts, videos, blogs, and more. Many of you have reached out and asked how you can support this network in the past. Well, now I have your answer. It's called the E2C Network Booster Club over at patreon.com slash E2C Network. There you'll find a membership monthly reward system where you can sign up for as little as $1 and get different perks at different tiers. Some of those perks include things such as apparel, eligibility to join us on future podcasts, recognition as an E2C network booster, exclusive communications, and bonus content that is available nowhere else. If you love this network and want to help us keep producing podcasts like this one, please head on over to patreon.com slash E2C network to join the E2C network booster club. You can also get there by going to our website, E2C network.com slash support. 
Whether you decide to join or not, we are still so appreciative that you would support us by just listening and being here because each and every one of you is part of our E2C Network family. Well, that's it. Timeout's over. Let's get back into the episode. Uh, I guess we've sort of gotten into the fans and the fan experience. And so I have a question here. There's basically two types of fans that would follow uh, Equestrian. So there's the traditional fans, what I, you know, horse people is what I would term those, or horse lovers who have grown up in the sport, grown up around horses, and they have a certain traditional propriety way of, of seeing it and enjoying the sport. And now you're starting to see more of what I would term SEC fans, or just, you know, they're on board because their school is competing, and they maybe don't have that historical love of horses, or equestrian, or riding, or anything like that. They're on board because it's their school against the school they don't like, and that's why they care. And just the clashing of those two um, fan bases into this one equestrian or college equestrian band. What's your impression of those two fan bases coming together uh, in this sport? Yeah, so great question. And really interesting thought that that came behind the question. So coming from the Northeast, we did not really know anything about college sports. Mm -hmm. You know, coming from an equestrian perspective, you know, I've I've been the, the... horse mom, mm-hmm. you know, braiding the horses and giving them baths and tacking them up and, you know, ironing the, the show shirts, the whole routine. So I came to it as a, as that equestrian fan, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm looking at scores going, eh, I got it. I don't really disagree with it. But you know what? We've ridden in front of that judge before. It's someone who only like, you know, heels down or quiet hands or a forward ride. And you kind of rationalize it away. Mm-hmm. Then I came to understand that, it, you know, Carol, Carolina Gamecock fans don't talk to Georgia Bulldog fans. And <laughs> so now there's this clash. So, and, and I agree, it's this two different populations. So you have people that are really interested in the sport of equestrian, but many times know nothing about college sports. Mm-hmm. So they don't understand like the rivalries. They, they don't have that inbred dislike. <laughs> For the rival. <laughs> That's a very polite way to say it, yes. And then at the same time, now you've got college people who are just so invested in their school identity mm-hmm. that really don't know the technicalities of the sport, and, and they want to they want to learn. Yeah. They want to learn more. And, you know, I, I think there's obviously there's room for growth on both sides, of course, mm-hmm. um, where, like, we spend a lot of time talking to people at um, our national governing body, especially now that Tom O'Mara is the president. Mm-hmm. Um, but we spend a lot of time talking to them about college sport and that equestrian as a college sport is much different than equestrian in the United States Equestrian Federation, right. where they're running horse shows mm-hmm. and and trying to get them to understand what a college sport is. So when we had, for example, Bill Maroney came down, the CEO from um, uh, U.S. Equestrian two years ago, mm-hmm. um, and he was like, oh, now I get it. All the cheering and it's one team against the other. And, mm-hmm. and here are the best riders, you know, like in the ring were two kids who had come in one had won the medal, one had won the McClay, and now they're both riding the same horse and getting yes. a score, and whoever rides that horse better... Has goes, scored for their team. Look at this. The, yep. You know, in the past, you would have, like, every junior rider who came through the, the USCF pipeline, you know, local shows and then the big shows, and, and all they ever wanted to do was ride in the Olympics. You know, mm-hmm. well, every four years, there's four people on that team. Right. So, so the, yeah, the, the chances of getting in there just by law of averages, very slim. So the, the reality is, you know... 
let's find success somewhere else. And right. now what we're finding, um, real early on in some of, uh, like the um, Interscholastic Equestrian Association, which is very, very popular, you know, if, if you ask those kids, they want to ride in college now. They want to be on a college team. Mm-hmm. And that, that wasn't there before. And it's a, it's a sign of, you know, a shift in, in how people are thinking. They want to be part of a team because mm-hmm. equestrian is not a team sport per se. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, one of the big changes that the college format offers, or specifically the NCEA, because I know at IHSA, it's a it's more akin to the show jumping where there is a team aspect, but it is primarily built around the individual score. And, you know, it's, it's more like cross country where you're running by yourself and you can help your team out by doing better. But it really is truly an individual sport, whereas in the NCEA, it's more like tennis where, you know, you're matched up against another athlete and you, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're the second worst athlete out there today. If you're a little bit better than that athlete, you score a point for your team, and that point is worth just as much as if the two, you know, best players in the sport were going after each other. So, yeah, it it really is team-focused, and I think uh, one of the things I've thought about is that it must be it must be very exciting to a young rider who has maybe grown up in the sport and every meet that she goes I'm sorry every show she goes to in order for her to win her friend or a, a, another rider has to lose you know in order for her to win her, her friend has to lose but when you get into the college team both you and your friend win or both you and your friend lose you do it together and so that. That shift uh, must be very, very attractive to a lot of, of young riders. And at the same time, um, incoming freshmen mm-hmm. need need help to transition to that because they don't have that experience. Hmm. Yeah. So they, they've never, you know, I mean, totally horse show mom again. You mm-hmm. sit at the ring and, and you really don't want anyone else to do well except your personal rider that's in the ring when you go right. to a, a horse show. That's totally opposite from where you have to be in college. And yeah. and some girls who come to college and ride on a women's team have never um, have never had to say, you know what, I'm not quite as good as Sally. Mm-hmm. So if if my role is to be the schooling rider to set up the horse that Sally's going to ride, mm-hmm. and that's my job, I have to do my job better than anyone else. Hmm. And that's yeah. very very different from you know being you know you'll hear lots of trainers oh you know the judge was bad and you you really won that class and you're the best rider and you know and okay people need that to be motivated and feel good about themselves but it doesn't help them in college where they have to self assess mm-hmm. their own skill level and say you know what I I need to help the team win and here's the role that I play today and I'm part of this team and I'm important so it, yeah. it's a it's an incredible opportunity. For for them to really come into their own. And that that change is so important for them Mm post-graduation as they enter the workforce and the careers that these women go into, and they're so successful. And and it's really because they they come to that understanding, you know. I mean, trust me, they always want to be in the lineup. Mm -hmm. But But they're also learning how to do that as part of a team. As a support person all the time. Yes, we can't be the leader all the time. Sometimes we have to support the others. So... Yeah, exactly. Once you get out in the real world and you're, you know, you're part of a company, you know, it's not all about you. You're, you're going to have to rely on your coworkers and they have to rely on you. And there's going to be things you don't want to do, but you have to do it as part of the team. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we had some incredible um, student athletes who spoke at the National NCAA convention with me this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they spoke about the meaningful experiences that they had on their equestrian teams and how, um, how it really impacted them before they arrived on campus and then impacted the change in them during the time that they were on campus and then talking about post-season, uh, postgraduate success exiting, you know, and how they felt set up for those future opportunities. And, you know, hearing them speak was so powerful, you know, that it, it's made a difference. 
Well, you know, as we're sort of drawing near the end here, uh, that leads me into, I guess, my final question here is, so as we're going through all of this, all of these challenges of COVID, um, everything that, you know, is going on, what lessons do you hope that uh, these student athletes are going to be able to look back maybe 10 years from now or, or more than that um, and look back on their time as an NCEA athlete? What are the sort, sort of lessons that you hope these athletes that are going through everything we're going through right now, what do you think the lessons are they're going to be able to take away from all of this? I'm hopeful um, that when they look back, they look back fondly at their coaches Mm -hmm. because what these men and women do for their student-athletes on a regular basis is amazing. What those coaches are doing for them to try and hold everything together during COVID is incredible. Mm. Um, And I I can see and I hear um, that student-athletes are stepping forward and finding leadership opportunities that in a perfect world wouldn't have presented themselves. But they are becoming incredibly powerful, resourceful young women who are looking at their teammates, they're looking at their local surrounding communities, and they're taking all of that to heart in a very tangible way. So what are they doing? They're making sure that, um, like, they're checking in on each other using virtual, you know, Zoom calls on a regular basis, more than once a day. You know, there's there are group text messages going on. There's motivational Monday, you know, uh, digital images that they're sending to each other and they're planning it and they're intentional about it because they know that that this group of women that they're so closely connected to needs that. (laughs) And I think that that's something that can't be quantified. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully they never need to reach deep like this and do this because there's um, a glaring need. Mm -hmm. But my hope would be that it would become part of their leadership skills and their communication skills and their um, care for others Mm -hmm. and that they had time to practice those skills this year. And maybe it just becomes part of their daily routines. That would be, I think, a great gift. Wow. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, man. That, yeah, even with all these challenges, there's a great deal of opportunity for uh, the student athletes who are going through this to to really grow and, and, you know, develop skills that are going to help them, hopefully not in exactly this way down the line, but, you know, at some point in the future, they'll be able to draw on these things and and say, hey, yeah, I went through something similar back when I was in school. So, yeah, that's a great, yeah. yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fiorentino. This was a real treat for me. I want to thank you for coming on the show and just your insight and uh, just, you know, I want to encourage you to keep doing the great job that you're doing and we're looking forward to the rest of the season and the postseason. Yeah, and you know what? Real hopeful that maybe next year I'll get down to the Great Plains. I was there for a meet uh, two years ago and Mm -hmm. maybe I can see you in your costume. Yes, well, we'll see. Yeah, I definitely I'll be the one dressed as Auburn Elvis, so I'm pretty easy to pick out of a crowd. <laughs> what a great interview, man. I am not just excited about the sport, but now I'm thinking, man, this is cool how all these athletes are using this past year to become better people. War Eagle, y'all. So, here's what happened this past week. A lot of Big 12 meets got postponed or canceled because of the winter storms. And the Auburn-South Carolina meet got postponed because the Gamecocks had some uh, COVID exposures and contact tracing issues. But we do have a few meets to recap for you. Now to set the stage, here are the Auburn-Elvis rankings from before this past week. The sky is blue, water is wet, and Auburn is still number one. 
Georgia is number two, Texas A&M is number three, Baylor leads the Big 12 and is number four overall. South Carolina sits at number five, TCU is just waiting there at number six, getting all restless. SMU might not be happy with number seven, but they should be. Fresno State won something, so they are number eight. Oklahoma State is at number nine because a third of the season has gone by and they have not competed yet. And South Dakota State has a death grip on number 10. So that's how things started off. And then on Friday, this first meet that we're going to look at was between Sweetbriar and Georgia. Now you're going to remember from that Dr. Fiorentino interview that the year this year NCA is going to have a new national championship tournament just for the jumping seat only teams. Sweetbriar is one of those teams. So, seeing how they match up against a powerhouse like Georgia will hopefully give us some insight into that part of the postseason. So the first event was fences. Uh, Georgia did not take it easy on the visiting Vixens. Georgia put uh, four of their typical starters into this lineup, plus a freshman, Izzy Song. Uh, Song did win a point in their red-black scrimmage in the fall, but this was her official start. And as fate would have it, she got matched up against the top Sweetbriar fences rider in Katie Balding. Uh, Balding won that point and actually had the MOP ride in the event. However, after that, Georgia took all of the other four points in the event and had a 4-1 lead at the half. So, over things went to equitation on the flat. Vixen freshman Emily Longest beat out Georgia freshman Jordan Turig for the first point of the event. Uh, Georgia would go on to win three of the five points here with Sweetbriar getting the other two. But Sweetbriar turned in another MOP ride with junior Britt Larson-Jackson. All five of Georgia's flat riders had started previously, so for Sweetbriar to get 40% of these points, that says that the Vixens just might be the front runner for that single discipline national championship this year. And then we go on over to Sunday. We had Oklahoma State at TCU. Yes, that is right. Like a prima donna who shows up two hours late to her own Sweet 16, the Oklahoma State Cowgirls have finally kicked off their season in week number nine. Here's how the things went. The first event up was Fences. In this event, OSU returned almost everybody from last season, but they still added in a couple of new starters into this lineup, and it did not matter much for them. TCU took all of the matchups that um, favored their experienced riders, plus two of the toss-up matchups between them and OSU. Um, the Oklahoma State, uh, rider Schnell, she finally stopped the bleeding at the end of this event. She won her point and kept it from being a total sweep. So, that first event went 4-1 to one in favor of the Horned Frogs. Then the action went over to Raining, or actually it was going on at the same time. Uh, this is an event where OSU saw the most departures from last season's starting lineup, but their inter-squad scrimmage seemed to indicate that they had recruited well here. I had each team favored to win about two of the matchups with a toss-up going on between a pair of the freshmen. Now, this event began with TCU taking a point away from one of the matchups that I had favored the Cowgirls in. Um, It was a girl, uh, uh, Louvren. Uh, She actually won a lot of her points last year, but with such a big layoff, she kind of wasn't sharp um, on Sunday. So, basically, TCU did really well in this one. There was a no-point tie, which meant that uh, the number to reach instead of 11 to guarantee you win was now 10. So, whoever, whichever team reached 10 was going to win the meet outright. There was a big point for true freshman Meadows for the Horned Frogs. Um, she actually has been starting over in horsemanship a lot. This was her first career start in reigning, and she got that point. But, of course, she was against an un- untested red shirt freshman on the other side. But, hey, it's a point and you'll take it. So, at the end of this event, TCU was leading 7-3 to and in command of the meet. 
Now, the thing is, looking at the numbers and looking at how experienced everybody is, there was a path to victory here for Oklahoma State. They have uh, some really good uh, jump-and-seat riders, and so the way the matchup worked out, it looked to favor about four of the riders for the Cowgirls. However, it did not go that way. (laughs) They did not deliver on their potential at all. They, In fact, they got embarrassed in this event. They lost four of five instead of winning four of five. Um, so by the end of this event, the meet was 11 to three and the route was on, um, Oklahoma State's Katie Schnell was the only jump and seat rider who took any points today. So when they go back and figure out what went wrong, they have eliminated one culprit. So, so then we had our last event of the day. It was horsemanship. Um, it was very anticlimactic. I thought it was going to come down really close that, you know, Oklahoma State would have done really well in fence, or I'm sorry, in, on the flat, and then they would have set up for a very close horsemanship finish. But no, no, didn't matter. Uh, TCU had locked up the meet by then, so these were just to see how big the win was going to be. I had OSU favored in about two of these matchups, and then a couple of toss-ups. Didn't really go the way I thought it was going to go. In the end, TCU took three points, and Oklahoma State only took two. So the meet ended 14-5. to This was a big win for TCU, their biggest in Big 12 competition, I think, and it was a terrible loss for Oklahoma State. Now, obviously, Oklahoma State should not have been ranked number two in the, in the nation like the NCEA had them. So the cowgirl performance really was only about a point or two better than what UT Martin did against this TCU team. So we really expect more from Oklahoma State. This was just a big fat disappointment for a team that had dreams of uh, being national champions this year, potentially. Now, obviously, the Cowgirls uh, would have benefited if they'd had some easy meets up front against some lesser teams before going on the road to a good Big 12 team like this. Um, And so while last week's cancellations aren't their fault, the rest of their schedule is their fault. Oklahoma State chose to wait until week eight to begin their season. And so when that one got canceled, it now began on week nine. But still, that's really hard to get going this late into the season. So... Now, I will say that we should not panic over this one meet. This is just one meet. Oklahoma State still has a lot of talent, and now their talent is actually pretty motivated. They're going to have plenty of, of other chances to prove themselves, and every one of their riders is going to be focused on regaining some of that lost pride. They have another big road test at Baylor next week, and they're also going to ride against SMU, and uh, they are talented enough to win both of those if they can get back riding the way that we expect them to. Okay, so here is the fun part, the new rankings. Now, because the NCA rankings are not very good, I have my own set of rankings that are based on the results that actually happen. Again, mine are not based on equitation over feelings like the NCA rankings are. So, here are the Week 9 Auburn Elvis rankings. At number 1 are the Auburn Tigers. Four quality wins, no losses. They are the gold standard in the sport right now. At number two are the Georgia Bulldogs. They have two quality wins, and they seem to have improved from the fall. At number three are the Texas A&M Aggies. They also have two quality wins, but they need to keep on winning just to stay in this position. They'll have that chance at South Carolina next week. At number four are the Baylor Bears. The Bears have one quality win over a TCU team that looks even better now. At number five are the TCU Horned Frogs. They have two quality wins now, and I did consider putting them up at number four, but Baylor did beat them, and head-to-head victories have to count for something in these close calls. At number six are the South Carolina Gamecocks. 
They have one quality win, but that was so long ago that they have been slipping down the rankings recently. At number seven are the SMU Mustangs. They have wins over UT Martin and South Dakota State, but not much else. At number eight are the Fresno State Bulldogs. They have a close road win over UC Davis. At number nine are the Oklahoma State Cowgirls. They had a chance to shoot up the rankings this week, but laid an egg on the road. They'll face Baylor and SMU next week, so they still have plenty of opportunities to improve their resume. And at number 10 are the South Dakota State Jackrabbits. The Jackrabbits have enjoyed a long-standing place in the rankings due to cancellations and rescheduling, but they'll have to beat visiting Delaware State this week to remain in the rankings. And those are the official Auburn Elvis rankings for Week 9. So as we turn our attention to Auburn's upcoming meet versus Georgia, we actually have some results from Georgia Saturday scrimmage to look at. I'll go through the four events and it'll kind of tell you who is a threat to take some points from Auburn this Saturday. In fences, freshman Emma uh, Richow, uh, they really like her over there. She has started every meet. She did not score uh, in her three fall meets, but she has scored against South Carolina, Sweetbriar, and now in the scrimmage against Allie Trichler. Jordan Turing is another freshman. She scored on us against Megan Napick in November. She continues to perform at about that level. Haley Morano is their third big jump-and-seat freshman for the Bulldogs. She beat Ava Stearns in November, but she lost in the scrimmage to a non-starting upperclassman on Saturday. Sophomore Rachel McMullen beat newcomer Izzy Song, so we'll probably see Rachel before we see Song uh, matching up against Auburn. And then they had Annalise Reed. She's not a typical starter, but she did have the MOP ride on Saturday. Now over to the flat. They have been riding Torg and Murano on the flat, but both of them seem to be better over on fences. They went against each other on Saturday with Torg winning. Isabel Heckler and Allie Trichler went at it on the flat with Heckler getting that point. Trichler did not have a great scrimmage on Saturday. And then they had uh, uh, Emmy Lines who had the MOP ride on the flat. Now, in horsemanship, we didn't actually see their top two riders, uh, Taylor Burgess and Lexi Lane, in the scrimmage. But of their next three riders, Kendall Gill won her point and did probably the best of that group. Uh, She actually won the MOP uh, award for her ride. And then in that last event is raining. They rode a whole bunch of raining riders on Saturday. Uh, Jordan Carpenter, a starter. She beat Caitlin Lyons, another starter. Uh, Carpenter also had the MOP ride. Courtney Bloomer and Lindsay uh, Guin are both starters of near equal ability. Guin got the point against us in uh, November, and she got the point in the scrimmage on Saturday. Junior Addie Cullum won her point on Saturday. She's good. She didn't win her point against Auburn Isabella Tissimer in November, but she's ridden in most of their meets since, so I expect we are going to face her again. So when you look at how we match up against Georgia, Georgia did take Auburn down to the wire in November when it was at home in Georgia. Uh, They got some really good rides at home. Since then, the Bulldogs have looked pretty good at home and a little shaky on the road at South Carolina. I expect Auburn will match up well overall, but it may be another close one. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and predict that Auburn's depth will give them the edge and they will get the close win. I will actually be in attendance on Saturday, so come over and say hello if you're there. I love meeting folks that I interact with online, and if you are a parent of a rider, I may ask you for a quick video interview. Well, that's all for this episode of War Horses. I'm your host, Auburn Elvis. I thank you very much for listening. War Eagle and War Horses. 
Before you get out of here, we want to remind you of a couple of things. Head over to E2Cnetwork.com, our website where you can find everything that you'll ever need from us, podcasts, blogs, and even ways to help support the show. If you want to find individual episodes, you can download all of these on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. So until we see you again, I want to remind you of one thing that here at the network, we believe in Auburn and love it. The only question remains, do you? Do you?